Colossians chapter 4, where we'll be looking at our next to last uh, message in this series. Colossians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 2 through 6. Lord willing, we will finish this book next week, and then Easter Sunday, and then we'll start a short series in the book of Jonah. So, excited to keep hearing from God's Word this morning, Colossians chapter 4. We're in verses 2 through 6. And I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together now as we consider God's Word. Father, we do come to You now standing on the promises of Your Word. Every promise that You have given to us in the Word, Father, is true in Jesus Christ. And so we look to Him. Our confidence is in Him. We know, God, that You have gathered together. You have gathered us together here in His name. And we know, God, that You will work among us because Your Word does not return to You void. So we do stand on those promises, God. There are some among us this morning who very likely are, are coming today with the words of the psalmist that this is the day that the Lord has made and they're ready to rejoice and be glad in it, Father. Would You increase their joy and share it with others? And Father, indeed there are others who are coming in the words of the psalmist that are saying, my soul is crushed. Give me life according to Your Word. Would You help them to share their sorrows with us as well that we might as one body, Father, find joy and grace and perseverance in the promises of the Scriptures. Give us ears to hear, God. Lord, please keep me from error. Please give grace now to Your people. And help us, Father, to think very carefully about how You call us to live in this world for the glory of Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. Well, there are many aspects of Christianity that are considered out of step with the world today. Christianity, for example, is exclusive. The Bible declares that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ and in no one else. Christianity is absolute. The Scriptures claim to not only be true, but to be absolutely true for all people at all times and all places. And Scripture is comprehensive. The Bible claims authority not over some aspects of our life, but over every aspect of every human life. In each of these ways, Christianity is supposedly out of step. Our relativistic, individualized world has no use for the exclusive, absolute, and comprehensive worldview of Christianity. But there's another way in which Christianity is out of step with the world, and it's one that's increasingly controversial. Christianity is, by definition, evangelistic. Ours is a converting faith, an outward-looking faith, that aims to see people brought from unbelief to saving faith in Christ. Think of the Lord Jesus' final instructions to the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's a call to mission. 
What's more, the entire history of the church from Pentecost down through the modern mission movement is arguably the history of gospel advance. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. The gospel spreads. Christianity is inescapably evangelistic. And in the world's eyes, this is unacceptable. Our culture will tolerate nearly any idea, but it will increasingly not tolerate the notion of Christian conversion. Even that word conversion strikes against our modern sensibilities. Why would anyone need to change their worldview since all that matters is what works for you? Furthermore, why would any group be so audacious as to claim that their faith is the worldview to which people ought to convert? You see, it's nearly unthinkable in the world's mind that there would be such a thing as evangelism. Conversion. And so, as Christians, that leaves us in the interesting context of caught between two realities. On the one hand, we cannot deny the evangelistic nature of our faith. We confess that Jesus is Lord and therefore we are called to proclaim His Lordship to the world. But on the other hand, we also cannot deny that the world we live in is hostile to that conviction. To put it very bluntly, friends, the world does not want to be evangelized. So, to quote Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? How can we as Christians be faithful to this unmistakable calling in the midst of a world that is unmistakably hostile? How should we then live? Well, friends, our passage today provides clear and helpful instruction on precisely this question. Here in Colossians chapter 4, Paul teaches us what it looks like to pursue gospel mission in the context of an unbelieving world. You can see the emphasis quite clearly in the passage. Notice verse 4, where Paul talks about declaring the mystery of God. That's the language of mission. It's the language of evangelism, to declare. And then notice verse 5, where Paul instructs the Colossians on how to live among outsiders. That's the language that takes seriously our context in an unbelieving world. We live among people who do not confess Christ. You see, this is the kindness of God to us, friends. Paul wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago. And yet, in the Lord's wisdom, this passage gives us the very insight we need to face our world with faithfulness. Not some hypothetical world. Our world with faithfulness. It's true. It is true that the world finds evangelism either odd or just downright unnecessary, but God's not surprised. God's not surprised by the context we live in. And here in His Word, He equips us with what we need to live faithfully. Now, in the flow of the letter, this passage is something of a climax to all that Paul has been teaching. He began in chapter 1 by declaring the supremacy of Christ, how He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Then in chapter 2, Paul applied that supremacy of Christ to the claims of the false teachers, showing the Colossians how they must not be taken captive by empty philosophy and human tradition. Chapter 3 focused on the supremacy of Christ in our daily lives, how we must put sin to death and put on godliness in community with one another. And now here in chapter 4, Paul turns his focus outward. you see the movement? who Christ is, how He responds to false doctrine, how we should live, how we should engage the world. It's a climactic text. Chapter 4, Paul turns his focus outward to the world 
and how the Gospel of Christ must continue to spread out from the church. So, contrary to what we might assume, these verses are not simply tacked on at the end of the letter. This passage is essential to Paul's purpose in writing. In fact, I would say that if we miss this text, then arguably we miss the grand application of the book, which is to live out the Lordship of Christ. So these are not tacked on at the end. These are essential. The Gospel declares that Christ is supreme, and then the Gospel calls us to proclaim that supremacy to a lost world in need of the Lord Jesus. So in terms of an outline, we're going to consider three ways that the supremacy of Christ calls us to live in the midst of an unbelieving world. Three ways the supremacy of Christ calls us to live in the midst of an unbelieving world. The supremacy of Christ calls us to pray steadfastly. That's verse 2. The supremacy of Christ calls us to minister humbly. That's verses 3 and 4. And the supremacy of Christ calls us to live wisely. That's verses 5 and 6. So let's look at each one more closely. Beginning with the call to pray steadfastly. Pray steadfastly. The command in verse 2 comes quickly. Notice again what Paul writes. Continue, he says, steadfastly in prayer. Friends, the idea here is persistence. It's not that believers are to pray literally every minute of the day. Rather, the point is that believers should persistently pray with a persevering spirit. If you think about the life of the early church in Acts, you'll find a good example of this kind of prayer in Acts 1. Luke tells us the apostles were all together and they devoted themselves to prayer. They persistently sought God's will in prayer. Or if you think about Paul's instructions on the Christian life in Romans 12, you'll find the apostle telling believers to be constant in prayer. You see, that's the emphasis here. It's not so much intensity, like how hard you pray. Rather, it's consistency, steadfastness, persistence. Christians ought to be people marked by persistent prayer. And if you think about what prayer is, friends, then the call for persistence is fitting. At its heart, prayer is an expression of devotion to and dependence on God. When we pray, we demonstrate that our lives are not fundamentally oriented towards ourselves, but towards God. It's actually a striking testimony if you think about it. The act of prayer is the confession that we do not belong to ourselves. We do not live solely for ourselves. We belong to God. And we live for the will of the One who made us and redeemed us in Christ. Prayer, then, makes visible the devotion that defines our life as Christians. What's more, prayer also demonstrates our dependence on God. We are not self-sustaining creatures. We all like to pretend that we're all self-sufficient, but we all know deep down that that's not true. We are dependent beings. Our life is contingent on something other than us. We're dependent. We're dependent on God, in fact, for life and health and breath. And when we pray, we make that dependence visible, both to ourselves and to the world. Prayer is the confession that above all else, we need God. 
And this is why prayer is so central to the Christian life. This is why Paul calls us to persistent, steadfast prayer in verse 2. It's because prayer is connected with our witness to the world. Prayer is saying something to the world. A prayerful person is a God-oriented person. Or to use the language of Colossians, a prayerful person is someone who displays day by day the supremacy of Christ. We pray because we confess that in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ, all things hold together. We pray steadfastly because it expresses our our devotion to and our dependence on God. It's part of our witness. But Paul continues in verse 2, and he further clarifies the need for steadfast prayer. Notice what else he writes, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Here the idea is vigilance. To be alert for something. It's the same language that the Apostle Peter uses in 1 Peter 5 when he exhorts us to be watchful against the evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion. It's the same image. It's a good image. If you knew that a mortal threat lurked outside your front door, you would live differently, wouldn't you? You would check the windows, you'd lock the doors, you'd keep a close watch outside. You'd be vigilant, in other words. And that's Paul's point in verse 2. Prayer is a divine means of cultivating vigilance in the last days. The Lord Jesus is returning very soon. By the way, do you believe that? Very soon. Sooner than we would expect. And prayer is a means of cultivating vigilance in light of Christ's return. He's returning soon. The evil one prowls around. And we want to be found faithful. God's Word tells us that some who profess to be followers of Christ will not be found faithful. They will not be watchful. They will not be vigilant. How do we make sure we're not among their number? Prayer. By being prayerful. We want to remain true to Christ. And this is part of how God has given us the means to do so through steadfast, persistent prayer. You see, what Paul is doing in this single verse is reshaping our view of prayer. He's reminding us that prayer is more than making our requests known to God. Now, to be sure, prayer is not less than that. God delights to hear His children when they pray. So we should never shy away from bringing our needs before our Father in heaven. I want you to hear me on that, brothers and sisters. If you belong to Christ, then the Father in heaven gladly welcomes you into His presence and He delights to receive your requests. He is a good Father. He is far more good than you can imagine Him to be. And He delights to give good gifts to His children. And one of His very best gifts is prayer. So we should never think of prayer as less than making our requests known to God. And at the same time, we should also recognize that prayer is much more than making our requests known to God. Prayer not only reveals my heart to God, but prayer also binds my heart to God. The great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right, Bind my heart to Thee. How does He do that? Prayer. Prayer reveals our hearts and it binds our hearts to God. Prayer actually strengthens us in the faith. How, you ask? Well, by focusing our attention on God and by reminding us of His faithfulness to us. 
In fact, this is why Paul tells the Colossians to be watchful with thanksgiving. Did you catch that there at the end of verse 2? Thanksgiving kind of sneaks in. But it's more than an afterthought. In fact, thanksgiving shows up in every chapter in the letter to the Colossians at important points. It's not an afterthought. Thanksgiving is a response to God's faithfulness in the past and it's a confident expectation of God's faithfulness in the future. Thanksgiving then is forward-looking and it's why we should devote ourselves to prayer because in God's kindness, this is one of His means to strengthen us. It puts our eyes back on God so that we might live faithfully in light of who He is. So before we go any further, I hope that you see the encouragement from this one verse on how we can grow in prayer. I would say that many Christians feel badly about their prayer life. Perhaps that's true of you this morning. Perhaps there is a sense of guilt that you don't pray enough. Or that you don't pray the right way. I understand that thinking because I often experience it myself. But what I hope you're hearing at this point is that the way to grow in prayer is actually to focus less on yourself and more on who God is in Christ. In fact, I would contend that the most prayerful people you know also happen to be the people who have the biggest vision of God. Their steadfast prayer is telling you less about them and more about their God. They're not persistent in prayer because they're strong. No, it's the opposite. They're persistent in prayer because they know God is strong. And they know that they need His strength to endure. You see how it works? We grow in prayer as our view of God grows larger according to His Word. We grow in prayerfulness by thinking less of ourselves and focusing more on God. So perhaps that sounds counterintuitive you, but that's counterintuitive, but that's the way that it is to grow. You think less about yourself. How do I need to change? How can I get better? What steps can I take? And think more about who God is in Christ. As your view of God grows larger, your heart won't be able to help but respond in persistent, steadfast prayer. Has it ever struck you that no one has to work really hard standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon to be in awe? You're just in awe because it's amazing. It's the same way with prayer. If we see God for who He is, our hearts can't help but respond. Focus less on yourself and think more about who God is in Christ and we can grow to pray steadfastly. That's the first way that we have to live in the face of an unbelieving world. As we continue on in the passage, we find the second way the supremacy of Christ calls us to live. Christ's supremacy calls us to minister humbly. To minister humbly. You'll notice that prayer remains Paul's focus. You can see that in verse 3. Notice how verse 3 flows right from verse 2. At the same time, pray also for us. So the call to prayer is not solely for the Colossians' sake. Paul needs their prayer. Paul, the trailblazing apostle, needs the prayer of God's people. And he asks them to pray on his behalf. He's in prison at this point. He asks them to pray for him. Don't miss that, friends. Paul views the Colossians as vital partners in his ministry. The Colossians actually share in Paul's work by laboring for him in prayer. You see, this is part of the point in referring to the church as the body of Christ. None of us is a member to ourselves. 
None of us is a minister to ourselves. We belong to Christ together, and therefore we also belong to one another. We share in each other's joys and sorrows, and we share in each other's ministry as well. Paul needs the Colossians. Do you remember the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17? The Israelites fought the Amalekites a lot, so if you don't remember this one, that's okay. Um, They fought all the time. In this particular battle, though, this was the one where Moses was commanded by God to stand on the mountaintop, and as long as Moses held his arms up, the people of Israel won. But if Moses lowered his arms, then the people of Israel began to lose. Do you remember that battle, Exodus 17? Well, as you might expect, Moses got tired. Listen to what the Bible tells us when Moses got tired. Exodus 17, verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun. You see, it was Moses' ministry to oversee Israel's battle but Moses' ministry was upheld by Aaron and Hur. Moses may have gotten the headlines, but without those men holding up his arms, there would have been no headlines. Friends, that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 3 when he asks the Colossians to pray for him. Yes, Paul is an apostle with a significant role in proclaiming the Gospel where it has not been named, but Paul's ministry depends on the prayer of God's people. And so it is today, friends, in the Lord Jesus' church. You may not have a Moses or a Paul-like position. You may not be responsible to hold your arms up and oversee the battle. But each of us is called to be Aaron and her. Each of us is called to be like the Colossians, to hold one another up in prayer, to participate together in the ministry of the Gospel. Look, this, this, practically, this is why we pray for missionary work around the globe. We prayed for the country of Mozambique on Wednesday night. Why would we do that? Unless we believed that prayer was doing something essential in the work of the Gospel. This is why we pray for missionary work around the globe. This is why we pray for other churches. This is why we pray for our members who have the opportunity to preach and speak outside the church. We may not be out there in person with them, but we're working with them in prayer, Paul is saying. It's our ministry together as the body of of Christ. None of us is a minister to ourselves. Paul needs the ministry of his brothers and sisters. It's marked by humility. We should also notice the specific focus of Paul's request. The humility keeps going in Paul and what Paul asks for. Notice again verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Friends, for someone as significant as the Apostle Paul, this is a strikingly humble request. He asks for God to open a door for ministry. You see, Paul understands that unless God acts, there will be no ministry. Unless God takes the initiative, the work will not go forward. We can have the best strategies. We can have the highest level of gifting. We can pursue the most faithful methods. But unless the Lord works, there's just no way forward. There's nowhere to go. We need the Lord to open doors. Just as Paul reminds us here in verse 3. But the humility keeps going, friends. Notice specifically what the open door is for. It's not for Paul, per se, but for the Word. Paul asks for an open door 
for the word that he may declare the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel message. So the open door is for the gospel. So in some sense, the Apostle Paul views his ministry as not so much his ministry, but the word's ministry through him. It's the word that gets the focus, even to the point of asking God to open doors for the word itself. If you remember Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he has a very similar prayer in chapter 3 where he asks God to cause the word of the Lord to speed ahead and be honored. Do you remember that? He does, this is striking. He doesn't ask for his ministry to grow. He asks for the word of the Lord to speed ahead and be honored. So open doors are for what? They're for the word of God. They're for the word of God to speed ahead and be honored. We need God to act. And when He does, we respond by putting the gospel front and center. Friends, I hope this encourages you as you think about your own ministry of evangelism, whether it's a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, whatever the situation, our greatest need is for God to work. For God to open doors. And therefore, perhaps the best way to cultivate an evangelistic outlook is simply to begin praying from verse 3. That God would do what only He can do. Open doors. That God would go ahead of you and prepare the way for the Word to be made known. That's the kind of humble dependence that Paul modeled in his own ministry. And if Paul models this, how much more should we? Ask for God to open a door that the Word may speed ahead and be honored. Even so, let's say that God answers that prayer and provides an open door. Then what should we do? How should we respond? Well, notice what Paul writes in verse 4. Again, there's a humble dependence here that we shouldn't miss. Verse 4, that I may make it, that is the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, notice what Paul does not say in verse 4. He does not say that He might make the Word effective. He does not say that He might make the Word fruitful. He doesn't even ask that He might make the Word successful. No, Paul prays for the humility to simply make the Word clear. When God opens the door, our responsibility is to simply but clearly speak of Jesus Christ. To make Christ known. It's a good reminder, friends, that we are not responsible for the results. That's God's responsibility. And we wouldn't want it. It's God's responsibility. And we're not responsible to make the Word effective. The Word has power in itself. The Word doesn't need your help. Our responsibility is to make it clear. Or to say it another way, our responsibility is to be faithful. To speak of who Christ is and what He has done. Again, brothers and sisters, I hope this encourages you. Paul means to encourage us here. I hope this encourages you as you think about your own ministry as a believer. And if you're a believer, then you have a ministry. I hope this encourages you as you think about it. Most Christians are somewhat apprehensive about evangelism because they're honestly afraid of not doing it right. And by doing it right, we mean getting results. But as Paul reminds us right here, results are actually not our job. Faithfulness is. And then in God's timing, He brings the fruit when He wants to. 
You see, this is often what is missing in our conversations about evangelism and discipleship. The Word itself is the power. This is why Paul wrote in chapter 1 that the Word was bearing fruit and growing all across the world as it also did among the Colossians. Because the Word of Christ itself has the power to bring life. Perhaps sometimes ministries that we see are so anemic because they don't have any of the Word in them. We're, we're dependent upon God's Word. The Word itself has the power. And therefore, as Christians, we don't have to dizzy ourselves looking for new methods or clever strategies. And we also don't have to be fearful that we're doing it wrong. Instead, we're just free to focus on faithfulness. I hope we see that connection here, friends. The humility that Paul displays in his prayer actually leads to freedom. Paul is not burdened by what's not his responsibility. And neither should we be. Instead, we're simply free to be faithful. So when God opens the door, my responsibility is to speak of Christ. How Jesus is the Son of God who took on human flesh to save His people. How He lived a perfect life that I as a sinner could never live. How He died on the cross to pay for the sins of God's people and to satisfy the wrath of God. How He rose again from the dead on the third day how He ascended again to heaven where right now He intercedes for His church and how He's coming again soon one day to judge the living and the dead. Friends, that Gospel message, that word about Christ, that's what we're called to proclaim. That's what we're responsible to say. And praise God, we don't have to spruce it up or try to give it power. We're free to simply and clearly make it known wherever God opens the door. So, friends, let's follow Paul's example. Let's be encouraged. Let's ask God to open doors for the Word, both in our own lives and in the ministry of others. And with great confidence in the Word's power, let's ask God to help us be clear and faithful. And then in humility, let's leave the results in God's hands where they should be. The supremacy of Christ calls us to minister humbly so that God gets the glory. That brings us to the final way we're called to live in light of Christ's supremacy. This time from verses 5 and 6. The supremacy of Christ calls us to live wisely. To live wisely. In verse 5, Paul shifts to focus specifically on how the Colossians live their daily lives in the world. Notice again what he writes, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, throughout the letter, Paul has made it clear that wisdom is nothing less than the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. So the command to walk in wisdom in verse 5 is really a shorthand summary for the entire book, but especially chapter 3. Put off sin, put on godliness, Live with one another in a godly way. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. It's just a shorthand summary for living a distinctly Christian life day in and day out. What should get our attention here is that phrase, making the best use of the time. You see it there in verse 5? Making the best use of the time. Paul envisions life as a marketplace. And the number one commodity in the marketplace of life is time. You've heard it said before, time is your most valuable resource. And that's true. If scarcity determines value, time is the most scarce thing you have. 
You can't get it back when it's spent, and you can't make any more of it. So in the marketplace of life, time is the most precious commodity. And Paul's point is that Christians ought to be experts in the time market. We should be experts. We should be the people most adept at buying up time and spending it wisely. Is there an open door for a conversation? I buy up the time to have it right now. Is there an opportunity for purposeful prayer? I buy up the time to pray right now. Is there meaningful work to be done that can magnify Christ? Whatever it is, I buy up the time and I do the work right now. You see, of all people, Christians should be the ones who most understand the value of time. And Christians, therefore, ought to use their time wisely to make much of Christ. That's what Paul's saying in verse 5. Live in light of the end. Now, if that sounds too abstract for you, use time wisely, I want you to notice the practical connection Paul makes then in verse 6. How do we make the best use of time? Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here, Paul envisions our words, our speech, like a well-prepared meal. Our words should be seasoned in a way that invites a second helping, so to speak. I like to eat, but I don't like to eat bland food. Bland food may nourish the body, but it's boring. I don't want any more bland food. It's forgettable. I don't want a second helping of things that are bland, but well-seasoned food draws you back in. Even if I'm full, if it tastes really good, I will eat more because it's interesting. It's engaging. You go back for seconds because it's well-prepared. Friends, that's the image that Paul is using here. Season your words in a way that is compelling, that invites a follow-up conversation or a second question. Now, to be clear, I, I, do, I, I want to I make sure you're hearing me on this. Verse 6, we're not changing the message or watering down the Gospel. We're still called to be clear, but we are also called to live wisely. So clarity and wisdom are both virtues that we're responsible to put on. So, let's not make the mistake of thinking that gospel clarity gives us the permission to be dull or thoughtless. It doesn't. God gave us brains for a reason. And He made language with an almost limitless ability of expression. Why are there so many adjectives for something that is beautiful? Why? Because God is giving us what we need to have compelling speech that's seasoned with salt. That's what he's saying. So clarity is the baseline. And with that baseline, we aim to make our words compelling. We don't assume that every situation is the same. I don't like canned gospel presentations because it's not gracious and seasoned with salt. You see, do you see the, the, the deal here? We don't assume every situation is the same. No, we think carefully about what faithfulness looks like at this moment. We think about the person that we're talking to. We consider the context, the situation. And then we speak in a way that's compelling. And it could very easily just be asking them a follow-up question yourself. And let's remember, friends, that the most compelling witness we can give is the witness of godliness. That's why chapter 3 was so focused on godly character, including how we use our words. It's because godliness stands out in an unbelieving world. Godliness draws people's attention. I'm not saying that it draws their favorable attention all the time, 
but godliness draws their people's attention, draws people's attention. I have a friend, he pastors in New York City, he has four kids, and he said when they ride on the subway together, he and his wife and their four kids, they're the weird ones. And people will often ask him, are all those your kids? Yes. With her? Yes. And you're married to her? Yes. It's godliness that's compelling. He loves his wife. He loves his family. And people take notice. I'm not saying they agree with it, but they take notice. And then the Lord opens a door. And you have something to say. The witness of godliness stands out. Godliness draws people's attention. Of course, not everyone's going to find it compelling, but overall it does hold true. A life of godliness, including how we use our words, presents the world with a compelling witness to the Lordship of Christ. It invites that second helping, so to speak. And from that point, God may very well grant life to those who hear. So as we close, I do just want to point out what may perhaps be overlooked. And that's the fact that Paul assumes we're interacting with the unbelieving world. Notice the last line, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul assumes that we're talking with individual people and that we're interacting with the world around us. And so perhaps the place to begin for application is with what Paul began the whole paragraph with in verse 2, with prayer. As a church body, let's join together in prayer, asking God to help us see the open doors that already exist. And then let's continue together in the pursuit of godliness, trusting that God will use the witness of our lives to provide opportunities to speak of Christ and, and what He has done. There is, there is no escaping it, brothers and sisters. Christianity is inherently evangelistic. Just think about your own life and testimony. You are a Christian because someone spoke the word of Christ to you and God granted you faith. And now, as a Christian, you have the incredible privilege of being a witness as well to speaking the word of Christ wherever God opens a door and to do so with compelling, gracious, clear speech. So, may we be steadfast in prayer. May we minister with humility that makes much of Christ. And may we devote ourselves to godly living that provides a compelling witness to the Lordship of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to be witnesses to who You are in Christ. Help us, God, to be clear, to be faithful, to be compelling with godliness. We pray, God, that You would use us as ministers and vessels of Your Word, that the Word might go forth, that it might speed ahead and be honored, that You might open doors, and that by Your Spirit, Your Word might grant new life to those who hear. Father, help us to be faithful servants in this regard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.